Welcome to the Yours in Marketing Podcast. Hey, it's Blake here. If this is the first time that you're joining us on the Yours in Marketing Podcast, do me a favor. Please go wherever you get your podcast, doesn't matter where, and please review, rate, subscribe to the podcast right now. Well, or after the episode, whichever works for you. We're really looking for your support so that we can build this and make it even more valuable for you. So please rate, review, and subscribe the Yours in Marketing podcast. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. On today's episode of the Yours in Marketing podcast, I spoke with Jeff Atkinson, who is the founder and CEO of Huckabye, an SEO software company. And this interview gets pretty technical, more technical than maybe any interview that we've done so far on this podcast, really talking about schema and structured data and things that are you know, dynamic rendering, all these things that can be a little bit more technical. So if that is your inclination, please stick around. If you're looking to learn more about technical SEO specifically, this is a fantastic interview to start getting your feet wet. It goes pretty advanced, but here are a couple things that we really hit on. First off, we talk about how to optimize for humans, but also for search engines. And then we also talked about how to use structured data and schema to succeed in SEO. So please stick around for this interview. Again, it's a little bit more technical, but without any further ado, let's get to the interview with Jeff Atkinson. All right. Welcome to the Yours and Marketing Podcast. In today's episode, I have Jeff Atkinson, who is the founder of Huckabye, among other things you've done in the past that we'll discuss as well. But Jeff, I'd love to give you a chance to introduce yourself and just talk briefly about what you do. I'm sure we'll get much more in depth into it here in a minute. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks for having me, Blake. So yeah, my name is Jeff Atkinson. I'm the founder and CEO of a software company called Huckabye. We do sort of performance-based SEO software that really moves the needle for our customers, uh, formerly the SVP of marketing at overstock.com. And uh, yeah, really excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Well, let's let's start at the beginning. Uh, let's talk about <laughs> from the day you're born until <laughs> up until this moment. So uh, inter- yeah. interested in your story and first and foremost, so you went to Dartmouth, which I've, mm-hmm. I've never interviewed anybody that went to Dartmouth. So kudos on that one. Uh, but dur- <laughs> during that time, did you was there a moment where you thought like you were you were going to end up doing something completely different than you actually are doing now? Oh, yeah. Uh, I thought I was going to be in business, but I really didn't really even know about digital marketing, SEO. So I, I, I thought I was going to do something in business, maybe something in marketing, maybe something sort of in the agency world, because it just seemed really sexy mm-hmm. to me, to these great advertising agencies. But no, I, I really didn't see this coming. I did, I did want to be an entrepreneur at some point. And so it took me a little while to build up the, the career that I felt had enough experience to be able to do my own thing. Feel fortunate that I'm able to do that now. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was always a dream was to be an entrepreneur. But I really didn't know what type of company it would be or even what space it'd be in. So um, my very first business idea was a magazine. So, you know, <laughs> you could see how well that probably would have done. Right. <laughs> I'm much happier being in the in the software space than uh than the print space at this point. <laughs> for for greater context, are you as a person more creative or analytical? Hmm. I kind of describe myself as a very technical, fo- technically focused marketer. So I'd say I have uh, really good strength around analytics. I ran analytics at Overstock, but I'm relatively creative when it comes to technical things. I'm not like an artist type creator, sure. but I do have good ideas when it comes to sort of technical marketing. SEO ways for, you know, search engines to help or understand websites better. And so I do have a bit of creativity when it comes to sort of tech and tech marketing, 
but I'd, uh, out of the sort of spectrum there, I'd say I'm, I'm a little bit more analytical. That's that's interesting because usually, especially on marketing podcasts and this one and basically any other, you're going to get more of the creative side or just high level tactics. But then mm-hmm. getting more technical is more of a rare skill. So I, I would love to mm-hmm. get a little bit more technical here with this conversation. But First of, let's do it. First and foremost, <laughs> let, let's let's just take a step back a little bit and talk about yeah. starting off in your career. Was was Overstock the first marketing opportunity you had, or did you work for other companies before that? So while I was at Dartmouth, I was a ski racer, and so I spent a lot of time. I, I kind of always I grew up in Boston. I went to school in New Hampshire at Dartmouth. I was a ski racer. Got to travel one year on the U.S. ski team, which was awesome. So I got wow. to kind of travel all around the world and. And I really fell in love with the West. And um, I did want to do something in marketing. And I, I found this scholarship at Dartmouth at the summer after my freshman year of college. They had a program where you could apply for like a business internship since Dartmouth doesn't have any sort of it's liberal arts, doesn't have a business degree other mm-hmm. than their MBA program. And so I got like, I don't know what it was. It was like $2,000. It felt like the world in terms of amount of money. I basically bought my living expenses for the summer to live in Sun Valley, Idaho. And I took a, I really wanted to work for Smith, Smith, the sunglass and goggle company. They're based in Ketchum. And so I took a marketing internship there, which my job type, my job really consisted of basically taking out the cardboard boxes to the recycling bin. <laughs> Mar- <laughs> it really marketing, wasn't, right? <laughs> yeah, it really wasn't marketing. And if I look back on Smith too, I mean, everything was about, you know, picking out the coolest trucker hat mm. or the best, you know, t-shirt design, which is so far from what I do now and what I've learned really moves the needle. But it was great experience. And that's, that's kind of how I got started. I got to Utah because after I graduated, I knew I wanted to move West. I knew I kind of wanted to be a ski bum. It's actually a, a kind of a cool story. I was, I was moving actually to New Zealand and my mom, after four expensive years at Dartmouth, is like, you have to pay for, you have to do some sort of interview <laughs> before you leave. And so that ended up being overstock. And I still wasn't really convinced I was going to New Zealand for all intensive purposes. And I came out and had one of those sort of really rare bluebird powder days at Snowbird when I visited and just sort of fell in love with the place. So I started at Overstock really at the ground level. I mean, mm-hmm. I was I was just at the very bottom, bottom, working on the email marketing team. And uh, yeah, things kind of, turns out I had a bit of a knack for it. So, you know, I put some points up on the scoreboard and that really launched my career. And then you you end up going on to having several roles at Overstock. So you're, you're not only starting off as an email marketing manager, but then beyond that, you actually grow into roles as like an SVP of marketing. You're diving into the, the coal company CRM and you're dealing with their analytics and, and running a team. What was what was it like, I, I guess, if you had advice based off of that portion of your career for in-house marketers, how did you do it? And what would you what advice would you give to others that are trying to get to that SVP level in-house? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, my I've never asked for a promotion and I've never asked for a raise. And I think you really have to almost overqualify yourself to get promoted. I was really young. And so unless I had a track record of results where everybody in the room, everybody in the company were like, how is this guy not getting promoted? That then I don't, I really didn't think I deserved it. So I really do think of, I believe in a meritocracy. Fortunately for me that at the time, the culture really was a meritocracy. Mm-hmm. So 
email, for example, I wasn't even an email marketing manager. I was like just on the email team. <laughs> but we we grew that thing from like 50 million to, I don't know, 100 million in like a year or something. And, you know, the, at that point, then the CEO started to take notice. We became friends. Uh, he's also a Dartmouth alum and he became my mentor. And, and then just consistently sort of drove growth. So I was always on the customer facing side at first. So website optimization, obviously SEO was a crazy good story, you know, from zero to 300 million in, yep. in revenue. And I just really, I feel like you, you can't ever expect, nothing drives me more crazy than, than people that sort of expect promotions without really doing something. And so my advice would be, you know, just make it obvious, make it so obvious that you're driving growth and driving the company values and what what everybody cares about that it's just a no-brainer for you to move on up. I, mean, I was the youngest SVP ever there and when I got there it it really I did feel like it was deserved. You know, I, I hadn't cut any corners or received any favoritism and I do I do tell young professionals it's you really got to think about finding an opportunity at a company typically that's a little bit larger cuz you'll learn a lot more that has a career track if you do well, you'll move up and you have a, like a really key mentor in place. I think mm -hmm. people don't really think about that when they apply for jobs and get jobs, especially early in their career. But having someone that really cares about you as a mentor that wants to see you succeed, wants to sort of grab you by the bootstraps and pull you up is, uh, is probably the biggest break you can get in your career. It really doesn't matter how much money you make until you're like 40. It's just like statistics. <laughs> so don't worry about the money as much as what experience are you going to get and what are you worth kind of in the open market by the time you hit 40. That's sort of how I coach young people mm -hmm. to think about the experience, find yourself a good mentor, and then you know do a really good job that moves the needle. One thing that you said that, that really caught my attention there was just making it so obvious that you are the person for the job or that they can't live without you, that you deserve to be promoted, not necessarily begging for, for a promotion, not begging for a raise. And that's a different mentality than I think a lot of people would take. But when you, when you said that, I also couldn't help but notice a correlation between like, I mean, that's basically marketing yourself. And the way that, the way that you did that, the way you marketed yourself was through basically having a great product, which was you and just allowing that to speak for itself. Do you feel like there's some truth to that in all marketing? Like we should stop trying to push it too much and just make sure that the product is kind of at the center of everything? Or do you think there's a little bit more to it than that? I think at the end of the day, especially in our business, in, in the marketing business, you either kind of drive results or you don't. And so it's a very measurable, as opposed to like marketing, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it's so measurable now mm -hmm. who doing well and who isn't that at some point, and this is one of the things, you know, I'm not a big fan of agencies because oftentimes they don't have the experience of being on the front lines of an SEO team, for example, that grows that big. At some point, you just, you know, the rubber hits the road and you actually have to get it done. And, uh, and, and you really can now track pretty much everything. And so figuring out what works and what doesn't work. I think it's, yeah, very good, very similar. You know, it helps your career and then it's what drives success for marketers. <laughs> so really good marketers, right, are really good CMOs are CMOs of companies that have grown through the roof mm -hmm. and not so good CMOs are, company, are at companies that are flat. So 
I think it's pretty easy to measure people's success now as well as company success. And so, um, yeah, you just, when the rubber hits the road, you gotta, you gotta do it. Sure. You, you mentioned like the, the story of growing the team from zero in SEO to 300 million. It's a crazy result. What was it originally that really caught your eye about SEO that made you kind of fall in love with it? I mean, I remember I, I took a phone call with a guy named Paul Bremer that was recommended to me to speak to. And he basically just explained what SEO was. Mm-hmm. I never even heard the term. And I was like, wait, so if you, you know, we're spending like, I don't know what it was, like $50 million a year on advertising or something at Overstock at the time. And I was like, wait, so if you optimize your site, you're going to get all these organic search visitors and they're actually better visitors than any other channel. And so that was really appealing that this was like a technical problem that if you got it right and you had this great communication with, with a search engine that these sort of amazing results would happen. And then the analytical side of my mind was sort of running the ROI numbers Mm -hmm. where it was like, well, if you get to a hundred million, I don't care how much you're spending on the team. It's still not going to look, it's the ROI is going to be so much better than any other channel. So it, once it sort of dawned on me and I, I kind of explained it to Patrick, who was the CEO, we both just sort of got it and, uh, really, really, he, fortunately, you know, he, he invested in me and invested in our team and we got all the resources we needed and we really did like almost everything you possibly could do to try to just grow and grow and grow. And, and that's, that's what happened. What, what were some of the key reasons that you noticed for that huge spike in growth? Yeah. So fortunately, it was a good situation where Overstock was pretty well known at that Mm -hmm. point. So it was like 2005, 2006. They just started doing TV commercials. So the domain itself was quite strong. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of backlinks, but the site was a mess. There was another event that I sort of orchestrated that really helped us and that we were implementing a new internal search engine. So when you come to the site and you can search for products, I kind of had the realization that that search engine could also power all of our navigation. So we set up this, uh, the structure that allowed the perfect URL structure, the perfect page type for almost any type of search query. So you'd start with like sheets, you know, a category for sheets, and then you'd have white sheets, blue sheets, and then you'd have all those color options. And then you'd have white, a thousand thread count sheets. And so it was this sort of very detailed navigation that allowed us to almost overnight go from a site that Google could not understand at all sure. to we literally had a page for almost every query that we were interested in. And it was well organized with the right URL, the right title tag, all the great metadata, good product. And then we sort of figured out how to provide content on those pages. And so that structure with the strong domain authority and this new navigation that was being powered by a search engine, that just really took off. And so the early results were quite convincing for people to say, okay, this is working because we made some big changes early and there was nowhere to go but up because the site was so bad <laughs> that um, <laughs> we made these changes and things kind of took off. And so that was, that was really the first big wins. And then we did a lot of other cool stuff that still to this day, you know, has moved the needle a ton and, and stuff that was really creative. And, but I'd say to, to get us started that sort of uh, high domain authority, but bad site turning into a really good SEO site in kind of one fell swoop was a, was a big, you know, big deal. And we'll, we'll talk more about what you're doing. You do a lot with structured data and schema nowadays at Huckabye, but Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what, what role that played 
if any, in the success there at Overstock? Was that something that was on your radar at the time? It was. I felt like, you know, this guy, Paul, again, I'll give him a shout out. He, he was so ahead of his time thinking about SEO and how it worked. And even in like 2007, he was saying to me, Jeff, structured data, this is the future. This is how Google wants to be communicating with websites. And so we did it. We did, uh, you know, we had full structured data probably almost before almost anybody. And it moved the needle pretty, pretty well. But it didn't move the needle as much as it does now. Sure, <laughs> sure. Google cares so much more about it now than they did then. We were sort of, when you're a really early adopter, you don't get the benefit of if others are adopting it as well. So we saw it, I saw it, one is more fundamentally than just the fact that it, you know, helped us grow. It was sort of in my head that this was the future. This is how Google communicated, wanted to communicate. And there were so many reasons why it was better than them just crawling HTML. They could use it in interesting ways. They could give people answers right on the search queries. So just the recognition that that was sort of the future of where Google was going, I think was really how I kind of got excited about it and ended up building a product around it. Well, yeah, well, let's let's transition into that then, because you said at some point you wanted to start venturing out into entrepreneurship. This was this is your chance. And so now you're doing your own thing at Huckabye. But I want to I want to talk about the foundations of that and, and where the idea came from. If you remember where you were when you had the idea and started developing it. <laughs> yeah, so I don't really remember the exact moment that I came up with the idea and the idea wasn't this one. <laughs> it was a terrible idea. Uh, which I think is a, actually a great lesson for entrepreneurs. You do have to be open to the fact that your brilliant idea might not have been so brilliant. Mm -hmm. So originally, the first idea was I saw this behavior happen in the e-commerce world where people would shop for the best price. You know, they'd look at Google Shopping, they'd look at eBay, they'd look at Amazon, they'd look at Overstock, they'd go through the SEO results. So they try to find the best price, and then they would go look for a coupon. So mm -hmm. they would you know search for that brand plus a coupon and they go through retail me not and 75% of the time it wouldn't work and they would get frustrated. So the idea was, I still think it's a good idea. It's just sort of a, it's a, one of those ideas that needs a ton of funding, but was to aggregate all the possible prop. Like if you had a product, grab all the prices that you could gather out on the internet for it and then grab all the coupons, verify them and actually do the math for the customer to sort of calculate how they actually could get the best price. So that was the idea. It's a big data idea. Sure. You really, it was an affili affiliate site. It was in total SEO play. And at the time, Google started to not like affiliate sites. They wanted you to actually have the product and actually sell it yourself. And so we were really swimming upstream. But we had built some really cool sort of SEO automation technology that people that kind of knew about our company wanted to start licensing. So I didn't even really understand the value of a software company and the recurring revenue model and just how, you know, how great that was. It was just the fastest path to revenue. So we pivoted two and a half years ago into this software business. It actually started around a content product. And then we were like, all right, let's build a structured data product. There's nothing out there. There's nothing good. It's hard to do internally. It's getting more and more complex. Google's asking for more and more requirements. This is something that lends itself to being outsourced. And we came up with a really slick solution to do that. So that was our very first product. We have two products now. But our first product was, let's automate world-class structured data for any given website. Let's take them from wherever they are to world-class structured data as quickly as possible. 
and let's maintain that, you know, on an ongoing basis. And, uh, the results were just great. You know, it was really cool to see turning that product live on a site like SAP, which was a crazy early customer was just really cool to see them grow and kind of take off. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of how we got going. Would you mind briefly just explaining some of the different ways that structured structured data can be used just in case there's somebody in the audience here that has questions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could give you just a real high level overview of what it is. Essentially, it's a language that allows a website to authoritatively talk to a search engine. So for years and years and still today for like 90% of the internet, the way that a search bot understands is they crawl HTML. And HTML is unstructured. It's very difficult. If you've seen it, it's kind of, you know, just a, a mess. Just a blob, yep. And, <laughs> and it's just a glob. And so search engines essentially invented this language to allow a site to actually tell them what's going on on any given page. So you can have structured data around a person. You know, this is a person. This is, you know, where they, where they work and where they went to college and how old they are. You can have the most used structured data out there on the internet is product structured data. So describing a product and its price and dimensions and all those things. But there's structured data for almost everything. So events, uh, movie times, there's a bunch of medical structured data, a bunch of legal structured data, almost anything that can be represented on a web page, you can communicate via structured data. This is a software application or, or whatever. And then not only does it help, it has sort of two benefits. One is it helps Google understand just what's happening on any given site. The more they understand, the more search exposure they end up typically giving a website. And then the second benefit is that they use structured data in lots of interesting ways. So when you search for a movie time, for example, and it just shows up, that is powered by structured data. Or a sports score or a recipe, that's all being powered by structured data. And it's becoming even more important because it's actually what powers voice search. So, you know, when you search online on your desktop, you get 10 blue links. When you search via voice search, you just get one answer. Mm-hmm. And that answer is essentially just reading back to you what's called the rich card uh, at the top of, on any given page. And so it's become very important. It's a really big part of their algorithm at this point. And uh, almost anything can be, can, be, uh, can be marked up and communicated to a search engine. I'm sure that when this initiative began by Google to start having structured data become more important, there were far fewer options for what you could do at the beginning than there are now. But mm-hmm. I'm wondering if now, if you see any limitations that still exist that you would love to see added, like any new features to structured data or new capabilities that you would love to see based off of your experience. Yeah, fortunately, they're pretty open about it. I mean, well, Huckabye ourselves have actually submitted enhancements to structured data. So one sort of misnomer about structured data is that the open source movement is actually uh, schema.org. And schema.org really was the starting point of of structured data. But the structured data that sort of the the repository that Google actually uses is called JSON-LD, which is a a technology that allows sort of data to be associated with one another. And so that's actually the movement now that has the latest updates. It's what Google actually uses. It's what you can submit to if you have new things that you want to mark up. And it does get updated, you know, almost monthly at this point. So there's new structured data, new structured data object types and requirements that that change pretty regularly at this point, uh, which is exciting. So it isn't if you if you identify something that really would help structured data and help Google usually it will come to fruition. 
as a marketer myself, I, I know I'm doing my research and everything. I, you know, every single day I, I try to study things and, and learn more, especially getting more technical. I think that's something that a lot of people in marketing could do better is try to get more technical. Even if you're not that kind of person, if you're more creative, try to learn, but schema and structured data, it's still so technical to the point where I, I don't think enough people talk about it or study it. Why do you think that it's just it doesn't get enough attention compared to the value it provides? That's a great question, and I think about it a lot, actually. So I don't think it just applies to structured data. I think it actually applies to SEO. So SEO kind of gets ignored by your general marketer. If you think of your sort of general CMO, they kind of are fearful of SEO. They think of it as this, because if you think of all the other hats that they wear, none of them are technical. So almost a good CMO, in my opinion now, is basically a good CTO, especially when it comes to SEO. So all the other stuff is like budgeting and measuring ROI, where do you invest dollars? And then you come into SEO and it's like this totally different skill set. It's very technical. And that's scary to a lot of marketers. So I don't think it's just structured data that sort of gets ignored. Like we know companies that you know we're pitching into that'll spend a million dollars a month on paid search and can't figure out to spend whether or not to spend two thousand dollars a month with Huckabye to grow their SEO, which is just like mind blowing to me. So even when you start down the SEO conversation, there's this sort of fear and nervousness because the skill set I think is just so much different. What we really try to do is is sort of eliminate those fears. So don't be fearful of the technical side. Our solution helps you tremendously on the technical conversation between a site and Google. And we'll tell you how it works. And it's not overly complicated. Any marketer can understand it. But I think it is the fact that it's a totally different skill set than your normal creative marketer that's as a design background or comes up through, you know, an email marketing background or whatever it is, it's just a, it's a really different skill set. And so I think people get intimidated by it. And as a result, they underinvest and under research like you so well do these sort of technical areas, mainly it's like when you're a little kid and you, you just sort of don't like math. (laughs) And so you just, you might get through math in high school, but when you get to college, you just don't take any math classes because you have no interest in right. that. It's almost like that for a marketer. It's like you've got, you know, it's it's a class that you don't like taking. No, for sure. <laughs> and uh, and some people really love it, like you and me. But a lot of marketers, I just don't think enjoy that math class. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That and and I guess you can understand why. But even like it's very true what you're saying about SEO in general being ignored by a lot of people. But even when you get more granular to in-house SEOs themselves, there are almost two different categories of SEO specialists or SEO workers. They're the, the, the ones that know how to do all the optimizations. They know how to do all the normal stuff. And then there's that other category that really do know the technical side. I, 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 don't, I definitely don't think that most SEOs are very solid on the technical side, even themselves. To me, it seems like the biggest missed opportunity, but I just would love to hear your thoughts on that as well of like, if, if you ran into somebody like that, that wasn't in SEO, but didn't have a technical background, where would you start them off on a path to get to that point? You're spot on. First off, it's a huge gap. It's a knowledge gap and it's a investment gap. So that technical part of SEO 
is really the gap that Huckabye is built to fill. So there are, even when you talk to, and we can talk about, you want to get technical, we can talk about dynamic rendering, which is like super technical, but you're, you know, you could go into an agency that all they do is SEO and they don't have anybody that knows the technical side. And uh, that's, that in my opinion is the most important part. No matter how much content you write, how many backlinks you have, if the site doesn't communicate well to Google. So I think of it this way. We spend, think about how much money, time and money sites spend on UI and UX. Sites are built for humans and we invest tons on UI and UX. I argue that the most important visitor in any given day is this Google bot. And no one talks about what their UI UX is. What is Google's experience mm -hmm. when they come to a site? Well, you can just right click and look at view source and look at the HTML and that's what they're dealing with. And so that's technical. That's the technical conversation between a site and Google. And if, if that's not good, if it's not in place, none of that other stuff matters at all. Sure. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. So that really is the gap. I think, um, learning is probably the best place to get started and uh, just not being fearful about getting your hands dirty and sort of learning, learning SEO. I mean, I'll shamelessly plug Huckabye. We check a ton of those boxes for you, which is really nice. And companies like SAP rely on us to handle that technical conversation. But yeah, I think, um, you know, just learning, not being fearful. And then I also think typically your best technical SEO folks are developers. So they're developers that have an interest in marketing. And they, it's a, SEO to developers, they just sort of get it. They understand it so well because they've actually built the code that Google's crawling. So they know that there's problems or whatever. And they, they think very, you know, <laughs> binary, which is sort of like how an SEO thinks. So good technical SEO people usually end up having some sort of development background. I don't at all. I don't, I don't have any development background, but I sure do love working with developers and have worked with them throughout my entire career. But finding a developer that's interested in SEO is, is a huge win. It's our biggest investment. We at once had three dev teams of five people each at Overstock all working just on SEO. Wow. Which yeah. is, um, you know, you just don't really hear about that very often. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I one thing that I did, you know, when I was going through school was I, I made sure to take basic coding classes like HTML, CSS. I never, I could never get my brain around JavaScript, but at, at least having the foundation of those two can set mm -hmm. you apart. You know, even it's, it's, it's pretty simple stuff, but you, you were mentioning talking kind of about UX and I've been a big proponent of this on past podcasts as well. Just talking about how I really believe UX and SEO are melting together more now than ever. And that's kind of the, the future of, of organic search, I guess you could say is, making sure the user experience and the intent and the actual SEO is all aligning. It's, it's no longer completely separate things. They all are a little intermingled, but now when you get technical with optimizing around search engines, how do you personally toe the line of, yeah, we've got to optimize our site for human beings still, but we also have to optimize our site for search engines. So how do you toe that line and keep it balanced? Yeah. Blake, you're asking great questions, by the way. <laughs> These are so good. So here's my experience. I don't understand friction between UX and SEO. And I think you're totally correct that good SEO is also good UI, UX. Mm -hmm. I have seen any website that I've seen that gets optimized for SEO, the conversion rates go up. And even if you take the organic search traffic channel out of that, 
which always converts higher. And so it's just naturally going to bring up the conversion rate. If you take that out, all the other channels convert higher too, because you're organizing a site based on what people search for. And you're giving, you're calling things what people call them instead of what you call them internally. And then you're creating clickable links and pages about those things. So when someone comes to an SEO friendly site, it's organized for humans. It's organized in a way that people recognize the nomenclature, they know what to click on, and they can, in general, find what they're looking for a lot easier. So I'm a big fan of do optimize for SEO and just see what your conversion rate does. So many times I see companies do big site overhauls and UI UX experiments with you know users and labs being tracking their mouses and stuff. And they'll, six months later, their conversion rate's down because mm-hmm. they'll think they know what a person wants, but they really don't. And so the tested sort of tried and true conversion rate optimization is, is always SEO friendly. Page speed, right? Page speed is one of the best things you can do yep. for conversion rates. And it's also one of the best things you can do for SEO. Fast sites convert well and fast sites Google loves. So I think they're the same thing. That's a totally different take than you'll probably hear from (laughs) anybody else. But the friction between UI, UX, and SEO, I just don't think it's a thing. I think they're actually hand in hand. They help each other. Sure. Yeah, I I obviously agree with that as well. What what would your response be, though, if if somebody approached you? and, And I've met people like this as well that obviously they're not on that technical side that we've been talking about. They haven't put in the work to actually become more technical. But what would be your response to somebody that comes up to you and says, you know, I don't really think structured data actually has that much of an impact compared to on-page optimizations and other things like that that we typically do in SEO? Yeah, I mean, it's typically a good analytics conversation. So you'll say something like, well, how many new visitors a month do you get today? Like top of funnel. Let's forget the conversion rate stuff. I trust you, whoever, that you're going to do a great job. You're a UI UX expert. So you're going to optimize for conversion rate, and that's great. What if I dumped 75% more people into the top of the funnel? What would that do for your business? And that, no matter what they do around the conversion rate side, that is a great place to grow. (laughs) If you grow that top of funnel and the people just flowing through the site, doesn't matter what the... And we do hear this objection sometimes where it's like, well, we're doing a site overhaul and we don't even know our customer and we don't know how to talk to them and stuff. It's like, well, one, you can't really learn until there's a ton of people flowing through and that when there's a ton of people throwing through, then you can actually do good UI UX testing. But I just say, what would happen if the top of the funnel doubled? You know, would that what would that do? Would that be nice? <laughs> and they're typically like, yeah, that'd be really nice. So I don't think it's ever... You know, I do hear that objection sometimes, like, we, we're not ready for that traffic yet. It's like, okay, well, even if it, you just converted, you know, as you are doing now, it, you, you know, you double double the business. So I talk much more in terms of, yeah, top of funnel. So, you know, you're, you're the UI UX expert, even though I've done a ton of work in that space. And uh, let us just help drive top of funnel and, and double your traffic. Is, is there any particular, just like looking at all the available, the whole gallery of structured data that you can put in, you can have reviews showing up, you can have pricing show up and all kinds of different things in the Google search results page to help get more clicks. But is there one in particular that 
just every single time, you know that's going to work. You know you can always rely on that particular one. Yeah, there's a couple. Event markup is extremely powerful. So any sort of um, ticket type company, movie tickets, show tickets, mm-hmm. that's like if you're not doing it, you're like you just don't get any organic traffic anymore. You kind of have to do it. The same thing is in like recipes and stuff like that. You have to be doing it unless you're just gone. I'd say industry-wise, software, B2B in particular, business-to-business sites, and in particular, B2B software is where it actually probably moves the needle the most. And the reason for that is if you think of your typical e-commerce site, it's very well-structured. So a bot comes in, there's these really well-described categories like patio furniture or men's watches. They're all the same format. And lo and behold, when you're in patio furniture, there's a bunch of patio furniture under that link. They understand it's a category. They can crawl it and understand it. The product pages then, they're also all the same format. So product name, price, description, reviews. So if you think about just the level of understanding when a bot comes into like an Overstock or an Amazon, they know how to crawl and understand an e-commerce site. When you get to big B2B software, let's take like SAP as an example, who are fortunate enough to have as a customer. All that structure goes out the window. There isn't a product page. They're much more complicated products. They integrate with different things. And so Google wants to know everything they possibly can about SAP and their products and what they do. But if they're Without the structure there on their site, they just really kind of struggle to understand exactly what's going on. Typically, those sites aren't very SEO friendly. They, they make up names for their products, you know, yeah. like um, they don't name them what, <laughs> what, what they are. They, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, they like <laughs> weird names. Absolutely. And so a search engine really struggles. So when you layer structured data on top of a site like that, you're saying to them, this is actually a software application and here's how much it costs and here's what it does and here's what it integrates with and here are reviews. It just sort of goes nuts because Google's finally getting the information that they want out of a site like that. And so those are the ones that get probably the most benefit is the B2B world where there's no structure, complicated products that need like a sales cycle and all that. Google doesn't get the sales pitch, right? They don't get an account executive coming to their office and pitching them with a PowerPoint presentation. So they just really struggle to understand those businesses and structured data ends up being just a really phenomenal way to to educate Google about what they do. And when they do, you know, when you do that properly, they just kind of take off. They go through the roof. The other thing that's interesting about software too is that because the margins are so high, you could do, you know, you could get one an in, incremental inbound lead and it just pays for itself right away. Whereas e-commerce, you got to sell a lot of sheet sets to, <laughs> to, you know, make that money. But with software, the, you know, sometimes the ticket values are like a million bucks or a hundred thousand dollars. So the ROI in software is just sort of crazy. If, if you had to take your wildest guess as to what percentage of SaaS or B2B companies actually use this, use structured data in their strategy, what would your guess be? 3%. Most of them would be Huckabye customers. <laughs> and and as for like e-commerce, I'm guessing... 95. Yeah. So it's it's a little, it's a little disparate. Well, it, goes, it goes back to those margins. The reason <laughs> is you can like, you can have a great sales team. You can grow into a pretty big software company 
without ever doing SEO. Sure. You can't get anywhere in e-commerce without being like an SEO ninja. So software companies discover SEO later in their life cycle than e-commerce sites do. Mm -hmm. And they're way more competitive because their whole business is driven based on, or, you know, a lot of it is based on, are they winning or losing at organic search? So they're, when you talk to like, we have a backcountry.com, they're a park city based e-commerce site that's gotten pretty big. When you talk to them about SEO, like they are dialed. You talk to Salesforce about SEO, like they often won't even have someone working on it. <laughs> I mean, they do, but it's it's just different. And mm-hmm. so we have a board member um, named Robson, and he's the CMO of a, of a big company called Pure Storage. And he was the CMO before that of New Relic. And then before that, he was the CMO of Concur. So he has this like incredible track record. And he, before he was a board member, I was talking to him and I was like, well, what's, you know, what's your secret to success? I mean, most of these companies have either been bought or gone public. I mean, the growth has been insane. Mm-hmm. It's like SEO. The very first thing I do when I get there is like, where are we at with SEO? And let's crank it up because it's the only scalable inbound lead channel really out there for software. And so a concur, you know, 85% of their sales pipeline that feeds 500 something account executives is flowing through organic search. And it's just like that does wonders for their business. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing. I mean, another one that's even worse is like financial services. So like your fidelities mm-hmm. and bank of America, oh, horrible websites. They have nothing in terms of SEO. Like, yeah. They've never heard of structured data. No one in the organization's heard of structured data. That's probably an even bigger offender than the B2B world. Sure. Yeah, I've, I've seen that firsthand as well. <laughs> some, of, <laughs> some of the worst websites out there, I think, in terms of SEO. Mm-hmm. And if you think about how much they spend on marketing, mm-hmm. I mean, it's in the hundreds of millions, um, but they don't do any SEO. Is, do you think that's because are, are companies afraid of the time it takes for SEO to really work? Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's not that immediate sort of paid channel, you know, almost like a, we call it the crack pipe, <laughs> like immediate <laughs> hit. Yep. Yeah, I think that's that is a big part. And then to earlier in our conversation, the marketers get scared of SEO because it's so technical and. Uh, you know, I hear all these like rumors around about like SEO doesn't matter anymore. Google's too smart. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of ridiculous what you hear. So, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, a combination of things, but uh, just more traditional marketing. They're slower moving industries. The margins are sort of big so they can get away with paid channels and the math works by just doing paid channels. So I think there's a lot of different reasons for it. I think the smart ones, though, will uh, will figure it out. That's for sure. It's there. The smart software companies are all over SEO. They get it. And um, you can only get so big without it. And then you really have to invest in SEO. And so I do see like the sales forces and concurs and SAPs of the world, all, all of which are our customers, they get it and they're going big on SEO. I, so kind of going on with SEO, one of the things that you've built out is the SEO cloud with kind of the main purpose being if, you know, if Google was actually to have their ideal website, what would that look like? How can we make websites load that way? But I, I would love for you to just kind of dive into what your vision was behind the SEO cloud and get a little more technical as well, talking about dynamic rendering and things like that. But I think that could be really interesting since it's it's probably not something that most of us have actually dove into yet. Yeah. So my vision for SEO cloud, and I can't take all the credit for it, it's really our CTO's vision, 
but we've worked together on it. The vision is exactly as you put it. What would a website look like if you built it for Google and, and not for humans? And the primary example I use is Wikipedia. So Wikipedia is a very Google-friendly site. Tons of content, obviously, user-generated content. It's flat HTML. It's structured, and it loads quickly. All those things, Google just absolutely loves. So what would it, you know, I think of really three things that they care about a lot. Page speed. They want very fast page speed for lots of reasons. One is users. They care about users. Primarily, their biggest reason, though, is sort of selfish, is that think about the amount of time and money they waste waiting for websites to load. And that must just drive them bonkers. So it's very inefficient and very costly for them to be crawling a slow internet. The idea came around when Google started talking about dynamic rendering. And just for your listeners, dynamic rendering is a pretty simple concept. The concept is pages now load dynamically based on what calls them. So if I go to a URL on my mobile phone, I'll get one experience. If I go to the same URL on my desktop, I'll probably get a slightly different experience. And that's the best practice. Google supports it. It's all good. The big change was about a year ago, they said, well, now you can give a version just for us. And that sort of broke a lot of... One thing about it is a lot of... Most SEOs don't even know about dynamic rendering. And it's probably the biggest change they've made in years. Now, everything has to match up. The data has to be the same. The content has to be the same. But you can give them an SEO-friendly version. And the reason that they did it was the front end has gotten so difficult for Google to crawl with JavaScript, with dynamic content happening. With you know, they, Some sites they come to, they literally just throw up their hands and they're like, I can't crawl this. And so they're like, well, there's got to, you know, let's give people an option to, to give us the ability to crawl their site in an easier way. And so that opened the door for us to build SEO Cloud. It actually originated as an, a potential AMP product. We were trying to basically make an automated AMP version of any given site that was AMP verified. And then we, we figured out that Google doesn't, not all their crawlers actually index for AMP. It's really kind of in specific, their news bots and stuff like that look for it. So it was ended up being a useless product, but then it really worked well for dynamic rendering. And so, yeah, that's what, that's what we've, we've done is we, we take any site, we convert it into a flat HTML version. So we convert all the dynamic content. We strip out everything that doesn't matter. It ends up being usually about 30% the size of the previous site, which shows you how much code bloat is out there. It looks exactly the same. And then we host it in a caching layer. So we have a partnership with Cloudflare, who does edge delivery. And so the site's basically instantly available for Google to crawl. It's much lighter weight, contains all the content and information that they still care about. And it has structured data stored at the top. So it's cached. It's very fast. Yeah, trying to basically build what we call Google's perfect world. Let's give them just what they want. Google's pretty open and honest about what they want out of a site. It's like, how many times do they have to emphasize page speed before someone listens? Um, <laughs> right, yeah. Well, let, you know, it's, let's it's, dive into that for, for just a minute because you and I both know being a little bit more technical that page speed has, it. it's more than just UX. It actually has SEO factors behind it that you can mm-hmm. you can rank for more keywords if you have a faster website. You can get more organic traffic if you have a faster website. It's not just about making sure that the customer is happy because the page loads faster. Google incentivizes it so much that they'll actually prioritize your site over slower sites. So mm-hmm. with, with that in mind, like, why do you think that people are so slow to really take action about page speed? Is it, is it because when they run a page speed insights test, they'll see, oh, you've got a 
you know, you've got too much JavaScript that you need to fix. You've got all these images you need to scale down and they don't understand how to do it. Is it just because it's so technical or is there anything further than that that's stopping them? I think the first issue is that, and this is a theme for our conversation, is that it's a technical problem. So it's not a marketer. A marketer usually can't influence page speed Mm -hmm. unless they start ripping out tags and stuff. So it's often a technical problem and it's a difficult technical problem. So whatever CMS you're using, whether it's WordPress or whatever, there's often a lot of stuff built in there that's slow. And if you think about how a site loads, say I call a site from Australia and the servers are in New York, I make that trip to New York, like the the internet trip (laughs) to New York. I call the site. The site typically will have something dynamic, whether it's personalization recommendations or a chat box or uh, tracking pixels, those all get to have to get called from their different locations around the world. And it all comes back together and makes that lap back to Australia. So it's like, there's just a lot of stuff going on. And to solve that from a technical perspective, so the business requirements that are put on a site to have a chat box, to have analytics, to have the dynamic content, have personalization, cause a lot of difficulty when it comes to page speed. And for any organization, solving that problem internally is a very big technical problem to solve. And I very, very rarely see it even being addressed, Mm -hmm. quite honestly, because it is so technical. So I think that's kind of why it happens. As the internet has gotten faster, we've gotten lazier because they're like, well, I've loaded the site and it seems fine to me. But Google care. Yeah, they have a lot of selfish reasons why they want really fast page Mm -hmm. speeds. And if you think about big sites that load slowly, they're doing all these content marketing efforts that probably aren't even getting indexed because Google can't even find, you know, they've left by the time, you know, so we look a lot at crawl stats with SEO cloud. You can actually watch them crawl and see what they're indexing. And they don't really give you a ton of information on indexation. And so a lot of companies have indexation problems, meaning Google can't get through the entire site and they have no idea that it's even happening. And so what we're trying to do is basically make sure that Google could come and get everything in like 30 minutes (laughs) and be done a massive, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of pages. So, uh, yeah, it's a hard technical problem all these sort of marketing tools that we use and plugins, they're not necessarily optimized for search. They're usually not, they're not as, you know, often reliable as we'd like to think they Mm -hmm. are. And so, you know, I just remember from my time at Overstock, we would try all sorts of solutions and dev would go crazy because it would just really hurt the site speed. DevOps would really, you know, we actually cared about it a lot, but I think a lot of these things get added into sites without thinking about what is this going to do is this going to make life more difficult for Google? Is it going to, they just don't, they think about the user. They don't think about the Google UI UX, what their experience is. Sure. Well, I think overall the, the key takeaway for me obviously is either if you're, if you're not a technical SEO or if you're not a technical marketer, try to take the steps to get to a point where you're comfortable with it because it's really overlooked. And especially in the B2B side of things right now, there's a huge opportunity to stand out because so few people are actually taking advantage of it. And then on, on the flip side, you know, if, if you are more of a technical person still, it, one thing that, that really stood out to me is 
trying to build relationships or you know have people within the, the company that are developers or more technical that phase their way into marketing instead as well and developing relationships between development departments marketing departments that can be something that really just benefit everybody involved there's no, really no downside to it so from from that standpoint i mean that's that's one of the number one things i've learned here but i'm i'm interested to just ask you up front, like what, what's the number one skill for the in-house marketer right now that's listening to this podcast? What's the number one skill that most of them don't have, but really should? I think the, the quickest win is just to get good structured data live throughout the site. One thing that SEOs also very often overlook is the navigation and the optimization of their navigation. It's probably the most important. It's the very first handshake that you have with Google for them to try to understand what your site's about. And usually it's not organized in a way that makes any sense at all to them. So those two things are important. And I completely agree with you on getting a developer excited about SEO is like one of the biggest things that a marketing department can have happen to it because they can actually make the changes that will lead to growth. They can make your content that you're generating and all that much more effective. And so having a developer get excited about SEO is uh, is a game changer. And so that, I think you're right. Having those relationships, like I haven't coded anything in my life, but we had a bunch of really good developers working on SEO that were passionate about SEO. And they cared about the numbers too. They love to see things grow. It's pretty rare for a developer to work on something that they can actually see really impact the business. And they like that. And... Um, and so I think getting them sort of excited and involved and into the numbers and watching things grow is, is a great step. And then, of course, if you don't want to do it, we're happy to do it for you here at Huckabye. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's a good this, – my next question was be, would be just, you know, give us, give us your pitch really quickly. We'd love to give you a chance to talk about Huckabye really briefly at, at the end here and what, what you can offer and why people should check you out. Yeah, obviously we think about SEO a little bit differently than your typical – SEO agency. We're not an agency. We're a technical software solution, which I think is quite refreshing to a lot of a lot of smart marketers. Think of us as really handling that technical conversation between your site and Google. So the structured data will be world class. It'll be live all the time. As your site changes, it gets updated. You don't have to think about it. And then with the SEO cloud product, if you have a relatively complex website that has some page speed issues. It's a product that can really be a kind of a game changer. Our average customer, and these are some big customers, grows about 62% after 12 months of having us live, um, which I'm, we're really proud of, significant numbers. And yeah, I'd say that's it. I don't want to toot our horn too much, but um, we've solved a lot of these technical issues that we talked about today. And I think that is a big gap out there. And that's what we've identified and gone after is filling that te technical gap of SEO. Perfect. Uh, well, Jeff, I appreciate you coming on again. Jeff Atkinson, founder and CEO of Huckabye. Please follow him on LinkedIn. Are, are you on any other social media platforms actively that you want people to follow you at? Twitter's great. And then I have told um, people when I go on podcasts, if they come to our site and just reference the podcast, I'll make sure to talk to you actually personally. So if you care enough about this stuff, come to the site, fill out a contact us form. Say I heard you on Blake's podcast and I'll, I'll talk to you directly. Perfect. All right, Jeff, again, thank you so much for coming on and have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Blake. Thanks so much for having me. 
And that's it for today's episode. Again, if you're a first-time listener or you've been at it since the beginning, please go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Wherever you get your podcasts, we've got you covered anywhere you want. 